0: Chapter eighteen a of Considerations on Representative Government. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Considerations on Representative Government by John Stuart Mill. Chapter eighteen a of the Government of Dependencies by a Free State. Free States, like all others, may possess dependencies acquired either by conquest or by colonization, and our own is the greatest instance of the kind in modern history. It is a most important question how such dependencies ought to be governed. It is unnecessary to discuss the case of small posts like Gibraltar, Aden, or Heligoland, which are held only as naval or military positions. The military or naval object is in this case paramount, and the inhabitants cannot consistently with it be admitted to the government of the place, though they ought to be allowed all liberties and privileges compatible with that restriction including the free management of municipal affairs, and, as a compensation for being locally sacrificed to the convenience of the governing State, should be admitted to equal rights with its native subjects in all other parts of the Empire. Outlying territories of some size and population which are held as dependencies, that is, which are subject, more or less, to acts of sovereign power on the part of the paramount country, without being equally represented, if represented at all, in its legislature may be divided into two classes some are composed of people of similar civilization to the ruling country capable of and ripe for representative government such as the british possessions in america and australia others like india are still at a great distance from that state in the case of dependencies of the former class this country has at length realized in rare completeness the true principle of government England has always felt under a certain degree of obligation to bestow on such of her outlying populations as were of her own blood and language, and on some who were not, representative institutions formed in imitation of her own. But, until the present generation, she has been on the same bad level with other countries as to the amount of self-government which she allowed them to exercise through the representative institutions that she conceded to them she claimed to be the supreme arbiter even of their purely internal concerns according to her own not their ideas of how these concerns could be best regulated this practice was a natural corollary from the vicious theory of colonial policy once common to all europe and not yet completely relinquished by any other people which regarded colonies as valuable by affording markets for our commodities that could be kept entirely to ourselves a privilege we valued so highly that we thought it worth purchasing by allowing to the colonies the same monopoly of our market for their own productions which we claimed for our commodities and theirs. This notable plan for enriching them, and ourselves, by making each pay enormous sums to the other, dropping the greatest part by the way, has been for some time abandoned. But the bad habit of meddling in the internal government of the colonies did not at once die out when we relinquished the idea of making any profit by it we continued to torment them not for any benefit to ourselves but for that of a section or faction among the colonists and this persistence in domineering cost us a canadian rebellion before we had the happy thought of giving it up england was like an ill brought up elder brother who persists in tyrannizing over the younger ones for mere habit till one of them by a spirited resistance though with unequal strength, gives him notice to desist. We were wise enough not to require a second warning. A new era in the colonial policy of nations began with Lord Durham's report, the imperishable memorial of that nobleman's courage, patriotism, and enlightened liberality, and of the intellect and practical sagacity of its joint authors, Mr. Wakefield, and the lamented Charles Buller. Footnote I am speaking here of the adoption of this improved policy, not, of course, of its original suggestion. The honour of having been its earliest champion belongs unquestionably to Mr. Roebuck. It is now a fixed principle of the policy of Great Britain, professed in theory and faithfully adhered to in practice, that her colonies of European race, equally with the parent country, possess the fullest measure of internal self-government. They have been allowed to make their own free representative constitutions, by altering in any manner they thought fit the already very popular constitutions which we had given them. Each is governed by its own legislature and executive, constituted on highly democratic principles. The veto of the Crown and of Parliament, though nominally reserved, is only exercised, and that very rarely, on questions which concern the Empire, and not solely the particular colony. How liberal a construction has been given to the distinction between imperial and colonial questions, is shown by the fact that the whole of the unappropriated lands in the regions behind our American and Australian colonies have been given up to the uncontrolled disposal of the colonial communities, though they might, without injustice, have been kept in the hands of the imperial government, to be administered for the greatest advantage of future emigrants from all parts of the Empire. Every colony has thus as full power over its own affairs as it could have if it were a member of even the loosest federation, and much fuller than would belong to it under the Constitution of the United States, being free even to tax at its pleasure the commodities imported from the mother country. Their union with Great Britain is the slightest kind of federal union, but not a strictly equal federation, the mother country retaining to itself the powers of a federal government though reduced in practice to their very narrowest limits this inequality is of course as far as it goes a disadvantage to the dependencies which have no voice in foreign policy but are bound by the decisions of the superior country they are compelled to join england in war without being in any way consulted previous to engaging in it those now happily not a few who think that justice is as binding on communities as it is on individuals and that men are not warranted in doing to other countries, for the supposed benefit of their own country, what they would not be justified in doing to other men for their own benefit, feel even this limited amount of constitutional subordination on the part of the colonies to be a violation of principle, and have often occupied themselves in looking out for means by which it may be avoided. With this view it has been proposed by some that the colonies should return representatives to the British legislature and by others that the powers of our own as well as of their parliaments should be confined to internal policy and that there should be another representative body for foreign and imperial concerns in which last the dependencies of great britain should be represented in the same manner and with the same completeness as great britain itself on this system there would be a perfectly equal federation between the mother country and her colonies then no longer dependencies The feelings of equity and conceptions of public morality from which these suggestions emanate are worthy of all praise But the suggestions themselves are so inconsistent with rational principles of government That it is doubtful if they have been seriously accepted as a possibility by any reasonable thinker Countries separated by half the globe do not present the natural conditions for being under one government or even members of one Federation If they had sufficiently the same interests, they have not, and never can have, a sufficient habit of taking counsel together. They are not part of the same public, they do not discuss and deliberate in the same arena, but apart, and have only a most imperfect knowledge of what passes in the minds of one another. They neither know each other's objects, nor have confidence in each other's principles of conduct let any englishman ask himself how he should like his destinies to depend on an assembly of which one-third was british-american and another-third south african and australian yet to this it must come if there were anything like fair or equal representation and would not every one feel that the representatives of canada and australia even in matters of an imperial character could not know or feel any sufficient concern for the interests opinions or wishes of english irish and scotch even for strictly federative purposes the conditions do not exist which we have seen to be essential to a federation england is sufficient for her own protection without the colonies and would be in a much stronger as well as more dignified position if separated from them than when reduced to be a single member of an american african and australian confederation Over and above the commerce which she might equally enjoy after separation, England derives little advantage, except in prestige, from her dependencies, and the little she does derive is quite outweighed by the expense they cost her, and the dissemination they necessitate of her naval and military force, which, in case of war, or any real apprehension of it, requires to be double or treble what would be needed for the defence of this country alone but though great britain could do perfectly well without her colonies and though on every principle of morality and justice she ought to consent to their separation should the time come when after full trial of the best form of union they deliberately desire to be dissevered there are strong reasons for maintaining the present slight bond of connexion so long as not disagreeable to the feelings of either party it is a step as far as it goes towards universal peace and general friendly cooperation among nations it renders war impossible among a large number of otherwise independent communities and moreover hinders any of them from being absorbed into a foreign state and becoming a source of additional aggressive strength to some rival power either more despotic or closer at hand which might not always be so unambitious or so pacific as great britain it at least keeps the markets of the different countries open to one another and prevents that mutual exclusion by hostile tariffs which none of the great communities of mankind except england have yet outgrown and in the case of the british possessions it has the advantage especially valuable at the present time of adding to the moral influence and weight in the councils of the world of the power which of all in existence best understands liberty and whatever may have been its errors in the past has attained to more of conscience and moral principle in its dealings with foreigners than any other great nation seems either to conceive as possible, or recognize as desirable. Since, then, the Union can only continue, while it does continue, on the footing of an unequal federation, it is important to consider by what means this small amount of inequality can be prevented from being either onerous or humiliating to the communities occupying the less exalted position. The only inferiority necessarily inherent in the case is that the mother country decides both for the colonies and for herself on questions of peace and war. They gain in return the obligation on the mother country to repel aggressions directed against them. But except when the minor community is so weak that the protection of a stronger power is indispensable to it, reciprocity of obligation is not a full equivalent for non-admission to a voice in the deliberations. It is essential, therefore, that in all wars, save those which, like the Caffrey or New Zealand wars, are incurred for the sake of the particular colony, the colonists should not, without their own voluntary request, be called on to contribute anything to the expense, except what may be required for the specific local defense of their ports, shores, and frontiers against invasion. Moreover, as the mother country claims the privilege at her sole discretion, of taking measures or pursuing a policy which may expose them to attack it is just that she should undertake a considerable portion of the cost of their military defence even in time of peace the whole of it so far as it depends upon a standing army but there is a means still more effectual than these by which and in general by which alone a full equivalent can be given to a smaller community for sinking its individuality as a substantive power among nations in the greater individuality of a wide and powerful empire. This one indispensable, and at the same time sufficient expedient, which meets at once the demands of justice and the growing exigencies of policy, is to open the service of government in all its departments, and in every part of the empire, on perfectly equal terms, to the inhabitants of the colonies. Why does no one ever hear a breath of disloyalty from the islands in the British Channel? By race, religion, and geographical position they belong less to England than to France, but while they enjoy, like Canada and New South Wales, complete control over their internal affairs and their taxation, every office or dignity in the gift of the Crown is freely open to the native of Guernsey or Jersey. Generals, admirals, peers of the United Kingdom are made, and there is nothing which hinders prime ministers to be made, from those insignificant islands. The same system was commenced in reference to the colonies, generally, by an enlightened colonial secretary, too early lost, Sir William Molesworth, when he appointed Mr. Hinks, a leading Canadian politician, to a West Indian government. It is a very shallow view of the springs of political action in a community which thinks such things unimportant, because the number of those in a position, actually to profit by the concession, might not be very considerable. That limited number would be composed precisely of those who have most moral power over the rest, and men are not so destitute of the sense of collective degradation as not to feel the withholding of an advantage from even one person because of a circumstance which they all have in common with him an affront to all. If we prevent the leading men of a community from standing forth to the world as its chiefs and representatives in the general councils of mankind, we owe it both to their legitimate ambition, and to the just pride of the community, to give them in return an equal chance of occupying the same prominent position in a nation of greater power and importance. Were the whole service of the British crown opened to the natives of the Ionian islands, we should hear no more of the desire for union with Greece. Such a union is not desirable for the people to whom it would be a step backward in civilization but it is no wonder if corfu which has given a minister of european reputation to the russian empire and a president to greece itself before the arrival of the bavarians should feel it a grievance that its people are not admissible to the highest posts in some government or other thus far of the dependencies whose population is in a sufficiently advanced state to be fitted for representative government but there are others which have not attained that state and which if held at all must be governed by the dominant country or by persons delegated for that purpose by it this mode of government is as legitimate as any other if it is the one which in the existing state of civilization of the subject people most facilitates their transition to a higher stage of improvement there are as we have already seen conditions of society in which a vigorous despotism is in itself the best mode of government For training the people in what is specifically wanting to render them capable of a higher civilization. There are others in which the mere fact of despotism has indeed no beneficial effect, the lessons which it teaches having already been only too completely learned, but in which there being no spring of spontaneous improvement in the people themselves, their almost only hope of making any steps in advance depends on the chances of a good despot. Under a native despotism, A good despot is a rare and transitory accident but when the dominion they are under is that of a more civilized people that people ought to be able to supply it constantly the ruling country ought to be able to do for its subjects all that could be done by a succession of absolute monarchs guaranteed by irresistible force against the precariousness of tenure attendant on barbarous despotisms and qualified by their genius to anticipate all that experience has taught to the more advanced nation. Such is the ideal rule of a free people over a barbarous or semi-barbarous one. We need not expect to see that ideal realized. But, unless some approach to it is, the rulers are guilty of a dereliction of the highest moral trust which can devolve upon a nation. And if they do not even aim at it, they are selfish usurpers, on a par in criminality with any of those whose ambition And rapacity have sported from age to age with the destiny of masses of mankind. As it is already a common and is rapidly tending to become the universal condition of the more backward populations to be either held in direct subjection by the more advanced or to be under their complete political ascendancy, there are in this age of the world few more important problems than how to organize this rule so as to make it a good instead of an evil to the subject people. Providing them with the best attainable present government and with the conditions most favorable to future permanent improvement But the mode of fitting the government for this purpose is by no means so well understood as the conditions of good government in a people capable of governing themselves We may even say that it is not understood at all the thing appears perfectly easy to superficial observers if india for example is not fit to govern itself all that seems to them required is that there should be a minister to govern it and that this minister like all other british ministers should be responsible to the british parliament unfortunately this though the simplest mode of attempting to govern a dependency is about the worst and betrays in its advocates a total want of comprehension of the conditions of good government to govern a country under responsibility to the people of that country and to govern one country under responsibility to the people of another are two very different things what makes the excellence of the first is that freedom is preferable to despotism but the last is despotism the only choice the case admits is a choice of despotisms and it is not certain that the despotism of twenty millions is necessarily better than that of a few or of one but it is quite certain that the despotism of those who neither hear nor see nor know anything about their subjects has many chances of being worse than that of those who do it is not usually thought that the immediate agents of authority govern better because they govern in the name of an absent master and of one who has a thousand more pressing interests to attend to the master may hold them to a strict responsibility enforced by heavy penalties but it is very questionable if those penalties will often fall in the right place it is always under great difficulties and very imperfectly that a country can be governed by foreigners even when there is no extreme disparity in habits and ideas between the rulers and the ruled foreigners do not feel with the people they cannot judge by the light in which a thing appears to their own minds or the manner in which it affects their feelings how it will affect the feelings or appear to the minds of the subject population what a native of the country of average practical ability knows as it were by instinct they have to learn slowly and after all imperfectly by study and experience the laws the customs the social relations for which they have to legislate instead of being familiar to them from childhood are all strange to them for most of their detailed knowledge they must depend on the information of natives and it is difficult for them to know whom to trust they are feared suspected, probably disliked by the population, seldom sought by them except for interested purposes, and they are prone to think that the servilely submissive are the trustworthy. Their danger is of despising the natives. That of the natives is of disbelieving that anything the strangers do can be intended for their good. These are but a part of the difficulties that any rulers have to struggle with, who honestly attempt to govern well a country in which they are foreigners. To overcome these difficulties, in any degree, will always be a work of much labor, requiring a very superior degree of capacity in the chief administrators, and a high average among the subordinates. And the best organization of such a government is that which will best ensure the labor, develop the capacity, and place the highest specimens of it in the situations of greatest trust responsibility to an authority which has gone through none of the labor acquired none of the capacity and for the most part is not even aware that either in any peculiar degree is required cannot be regarded as a very effectual expedient for accomplishing these ends end of chapter 18 a recording by bill borst